Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airways. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness of issues concerning animals. This includes advocacy, activism, protection, conservation, and importantly, appreciation. The show is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne on 855am, and we're streamed live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are also available on the 3CR, um, that's www.org. 3cr.org.au and Freedom of Species podcast website. That's www.freedomofspecies.org. And all previous podcasts are available by iTunes. So my name's Adam Cardellini, and thanks if you've just uh, tuned in, you will have heard, um, or if you've been listening for the last hour, you would have heard Out of the Pan, um, where Sally was covering all things pansexual issues. So thank you to Sally. And this week on Freedom of Species, we're joined by Philip Sutton. Hi. Uh, g'day, Philip. Um, and Philip's a climate campaigner and long-time environmentalist. Philip's been fighting for the environment for decades and has been integral in past campaigns that successfully stopped nuclear power becoming established in Victoria, something that we might um, have to re-look at <laughs> in the near future, unfortunately. Um, that's Victoria, Australia. Uh, he's worked on environmental policy development for governments and NGOs and for the last 10 years, Philip's been advocating and fighting for a safe climate. In the 2008, Philip co-authored the book Climate Code Red, The Case for Emergency Action. This was published at a time when almost all climate NGOs were saying that we need um, to have, that we still had a climate budget, um, a climate carbon budget to use and mitigating climate change to two, two degrees Celsius was our best possible future. Climate Code Red suggested a new vision of a future where we act fast and work hard to reach a safe climate for the environment, for um, species and for society. Since the release of the book, Philip's been continuing that work on strategies and actions for, ch- for achieving a safe climate, um, something that's a bit harder than it than it, we would hope. Um, and today we're going to chat to Philip about what a safe climate is and in particular what it means for non-human animals. So Philip, uh, thanks for coming in and chatting with us today. And first off, I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit more about yourself and why you've dedicated your life to fighting for environmental justice. And was there a particular event or experience that sort of inspired you to follow this sort of um, this advocacy throughout your life? Hmm. 
it, it's it's a bit hard to work out actually exactly how it started, but um, I, I I wanted to become a vet because I liked animals. Yep. <laughs> so that was that was basically about where it started, and um, I guess the environmentalism in my life sort of started with my parents. Um, you know, my father's a bushwalker, and my mother would have been if she hadn't had polio, and um, uh, you know. If spiders were in the house, you take them outside, you don't squish them, and little things like that, which have quite an influence on sort of the mindset of, you know, small children. Yeah. Um, and I guess I got into, I mean, I was really interested in science, so I liked the big picture stuff, and so environmental concerns were emerging as a kind of a major scientific issue, I guess, ethical, scientific, moral, whatever. And um, when, when about with this? Oh, well, I, I guess I got really, I started to become aware of it consciously in about 1969 so that's a long oh, time ago. swinging 60s yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right i mean there were obviously people who had been doing stuff on it for decades and years and centuries beforehand but yep. um and then i got to uni and i really just it, like the 60s were a kind of a time when the idea that you could drop out and to do something for society was a regular thing <laughs> i mean mind you not most most people didn't do it but there were people who did so um i, I got to the point where i sort of thought oh you know, this is terrible this is so, so urgent you know i've i've got to drop out and you know save the world back in 1971 so, <laughs> so i've been trying to do it ever since nice one yeah. it's interesting to live urgently for all that time yeah and and are there any um any key uh campaigns or actions that you've taken since 1971 that you're really proud of that you that you think have been um really important um well i guess i, I guess the, the the getting nuclear power banned was an that, that was if you like my most successful campaign so far which was it it was kind of like the ideal thing where i came up with an idea um put the idea out into the world and, you know, give or take a number of other elements which were crucial, um, it actually just took off and literally the movement that emerged actually carried it through to, to fruition. So that was a case of, you know, seeding an idea and it actually happened. Yeah. Um, whereas, but, but the thing was that in those days, I mean, the, the pro-nuclear people in Australia and Victoria weren't that many and the number of people who are against nuclear power was considerable. Yep. And so the power balance was, was very different. So what we're trying to do now is much, much harder than, you know, what I was trying to do then. Yeah, okay. Yep, definitely. Um, so um, can you give us an overview of what – so since 2008, and I imagine before that you've been um, very concerned with climate issues and that yeah. prompted you to write the, write the book uh, Climate Code Red – with who was the co-author? Uh, David Spratt. With David Spratt, um, who continues, you both continue to write um, quite a lot on, on climate yeah. issues. Yeah, David's prolific and, and does a lot of work on the science side of things. Yeah, definitely. And um, so can you give us an overview of what a safe climate emergency response to climate change is and why it's an important approach? Yeah, well, look, the, 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 my current formulation of it is that you actually start with the ethics and and the self interest. Like in other words, why why are we concerned about climate? So yep. you, you look at what are the likely impacts, and you know that that will be it, that will be the things that people are concerned about will vary from person to person. My personal concerns are that I'm concerned about what impact it has on people, but I'm also concerned about what impact it has ecologically and on other species. So that's yep. that's always been part of my life and. I, mean, it's, I didn't mention it earlier, but I, I worked on developing the flora and fauna guarantee legislation. So that was 
you know, that was another thing which I did, which... Yeah, quite a progressive piece of legislation for those that don't don't know of... <laughs> yeah. Who aren't um, environmentalist nerds in, um, in, in Australia. It's yeah. very, it was um, sort of held up as quite a strong piece of legislation when it was first um, developed yeah. back in the 90s. Um, well, it was actually passed in 88. 88, okay. So yep. we got... <laughs> I developed the idea of it in about 1980. Yep. So, well, fair, fair while ago. Um, anyway, com- coming back to the, the, the climate issue. So I think that we really need to start with the, the ethical and self-interest foundations because what happens is people, because the climate issue is so big, like there's so many things you have to think about and do uh, to solve the problem, that people actually get lost in the solutions. Now, I'm not saying that they shouldn't be working on solutions. It's critical, absolutely. But if you only look at the solutions, people tend to forget what the problem is. And then what happens is that as as has been the case... Can, the Can you give us an example of, of what you mean by that? So if people are only focused on solutions and they forget what the, what the um, oh, problem yeah. is. So okay. what, what is an example for, oh, okay. for the people yeah, listening? That's a good point. Um, people have now reached the radical point of understanding that we need to get to zero emissions. Now, that seems an incredibly progressive, incredibly strong position, considering how weak earlier positions were. But if you want to restore a safe climate to protect all species and, you know, current and future generations of people, then you actually have to cool the planet down. And if you just, quote, just do zero emissions immediately... Yep. What happens is you stop the increase in the temperature, not immediately, but a bit later. Yeah, and and the the temperature keeps on increasing for a bit. Yep. And so people, so what you're saying is that people are focusing on stopping um, getting getting to zero emissions, and by zero emissions, it usually means um, zero emissions in fossil fuel. Uh, or these fuel days use. in coal, people can't in get coal, themselves off. Yep. Like coal obviously has to be dealt with, but yep. I mean. Remember, fossil fuels is actually oil and gas as well. But even even if we do just deal with coal, I mean just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. even if we do get rid of all coal, we're still not going to get to the, get to the or fix the problem which yeah. we face, which is a higher um, yeah. temperature or global temperature, because even if we get rid of coal, we'll still reach a very high global temperature, which is unsafe for many of many environments, well, species. So th- and- the thing is that last year... What happened? What happened last year? We lost what was it? Something like eighty percent of the northern third of the Barrier Reef. Yeah, it was okay. close to that. Yeah. Right. Okay. So that was last year. We had another coral bleaching this year. A, a healthy reef takes about ten years to recover. An unhealthy reef, which is now what we've got, takes about thirty years. And and when they say recover, it, it's all the different plants and animals kind of find their way in from the last remaining little patches that they happen to be and they recolonise the old reef and re-establish, you know, the, the general diversity. Um, if species go extinct, you're not going to, you know, it's not going to recover yeah. in that normal sense. Yeah. Um, so so we need 10 years. But the the barrier reef has just been hit one year after the other. Yeah. And the, the coral bleachings hadn't occurred before 1988. So it's a completely new phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And in the space of no, from 1988 to now, we've got to the point where coral reef systems cannot recover if they keep getting hit at the rate at which they're being hit. When I say recover, they can't they can't get back to their full diversity and they're going to be hit again and again and again. And each time they'll never recover fully. Yep. And so they're on a death spiral. In fact, I was at a, a seminar the other day where um, I was talking to one of the climate scientists there who said privately, and this is the point, wouldn't say it publicly, but said the reefs are gone not mm. just the Barrier Reef, but, but globally. And I said, well, what about if we try and cool the planet? And they just didn't even want to listen to the topic. Yep. So we've got this really strange thing where 
people have distanced themselves from the problem yep. and they just they just want to keep on working on the zero emissions which we have to like i yep. in no way do i want to diminish that because we that's absolutely critical but it's not enough in itself yep. even even to save the reef even if we went zero emissions tomorrow we wouldn't save the reef for instance well exactly because yep. the co2 in the air at the moment is enough to kill coral reefs around the world so yep. um it's just a matter of time before that happens unless we do do zero emissions so we don't put more co2 in the air and we have to have to take the excess CO2 out of the air as fast as we can, yeah. which so, can, can be done. It's, it's a gigantic job and it will take some time. That's the critical issue, time. Yeah, and that's, and that's what you were saying about there being a decoupling from people's strategies, which are the actions they're taking, versus the actual problem. So we start with ethics when we're talking about a safe yeah. climate approach. Um, so yeah, we That's what I would recommend. Um, I mean, people keep on saying, oh, we've got to do what the science is. And the thing is that the science actually, science doesn't tell you what to do. Science tells you how does the world work or how might it work or how has it worked. It's just simply, it's just factual information about the state of what's possible. Yep. But it doesn't tell you anything about what you ought to do. That's mm. all in the domain of, of, of ethics and, and self-interest. You know, like you've, you've got to start there. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So a safe climate approach um, is taking the problem at hand and looking at the problem that we are faced with, going yep. back to the basics. We yep. need, we have a, a um, warming climate and we need to deal with that rather than just saying we've got a warming climate and getting rid of coal is one one action we can take. We yeah. actually take another step back and say we've got a warming climate. How, how do, you, do we solve the warming climate? How do you cool it? How do you cool it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's right. And that's that's the difference between a safe climate approach compared to a um, the current approaches that yeah, you're suggesting. Right. I mean, the thing about a safe climate approach is is it's saying what are the conditions that are conducive to the continuity of life, you know, of all sorts. Yeah. Um, and what, what do they, what, what, if you take all the species on the planet, including mm-hmm. humans, yep. and say, what, what do we all need collectively? And then you'd say, okay, well, of course the natural system fluctuates and varies, so we're not talking about sort of holding the system completely frozen in some moment in time. But nevertheless, the variations should be the variations that all species on the planet can live with. And you mean the variation in environmental conditions or yeah. climate? Yeah. yeah, climate. I mean, you know, there, w- there will be century-long, decade-long variations. But, but the thing is that species have come through millions of years of survival. So it's not that they can't cope with variation. But the critical thing is the variation can't be so, so massive and so rapid that they can't adapt. Yep. So, so a safe climate is basically you're looking at what you want to protect and yep. finding out what the safe climatic parameters are to protect that in that that thing yeah and then you work to reaching those parameters exactly yep and and I, and i suppose what's happening at the moment is we're not actually starting at that that base level where yeah. we're sort of we've gone oh coal's bad so let's go and deal with coal without actually relating that back to whether that will produce a safe climate That's for those right. things we want That's to protect right. and and one of the reasons why people do that is because they they know the job's big and, and they know that we're stretched, you know, like as an activist movement, we're incredibly stretched with what we have to do. So what they sort of think, I think, is, A, I don't want to talk about the problem too much because it actually just depresses me. So yeah. I, I kind of know that, you know, just let's park that because I know that it's bad. Let's get on with the job. Mm. And then the, the, the thing about the job is, you know, stopping coal or getting solar, you know, collectors on the roof or whatever. And people can focus on that and they can feel good about the progress they're making 
on on those issues. Um, and so then they sort of think, okay, look, I know it's probably a bit more complicated than that, but at some, you know, once we've, we've ticked off this one, stopped Adani, you know, got the, enough solar collectors on the roof, then we'll we'll look at what else needs to be done. But they won't be they won't be understanding the dynamics of what you really need to do to protect reefs. Uh, I mean, the other thing that went last year was um, something like. Eight, well, let's say it was 800 kilometres worth of coastal mangrove um, mm, forests in, in northern, in nor- yeah. the Bight. In, sorry, not the Bight, the, the Gulf in um, uh, Northern Territory. Yeah. Um, and the other thing was um, in Western Australia and now we've discovered in Tasmania, um, the uh, kelp forests um, are, are being destroyed in the marine environment. And you sort of think, kelp forests, who's ever heard of them being sensitive to temperature? But I, I was talking to a marine biologist recently and um, they were saying, um, look, the thing is everything's adapted to the conditions it's in. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, you know, if you, if, you, if you take every part of the world a couple of degrees warmer, you are going to be pushing systems beyond their capability. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> absolutely. Um, and so we've, we sort of, you've explained the safe climate part um, mm. and what, the safe, cli- what safe climate uh, campaigning means. But what is... Um, the emergency response side of the okay. side of the yeah well see that's, that the emergency response is crucial to success like it's not it's not a negative a, a lot of so it's interesting there's, there's a very interesting debate within the movement about you know can you talk about emergency because what people tend to do is they they equate it with oh we have an emergency problem that reminds them of you know what's depressing them so they don't want to be reminded of that whereas an emergency response is actually what you do to deal with a problem. Now, mm. another part of it is that we're used to emergency responses after the disasters hit. So, yeah. you know, the cyclone. Yeah, this recent cyclone that's just happened in Queensland and northern New South Wales. Yeah, yeah. so you pick up the pieces. But there are emergencies that that uh, that humans have gone through where people actually do prevention. Mm-hmm. Now, this, this, is a, this is a kind of a, a weird example in a way, but um, people can either spend... Like an emergency response might be to say to the risk of war might be how can we avoid the war so that's yep. one emergency response. Another one would be if you think you're about to be taken over by people who you don't like, you know, then you might fight a war to prevent that. And so that's a prevention thing. So now, just just to get the record straight, I am not at all. I, I hate war, right? So <laughs> just in case anybody gets it slightly it's confused. It's an example about, of, of when an emergency response is used to um, mitigate some sort of yeah. massive damage. That's right. So, so if you just take these examples, I mean, emergencies that society deals with, terrorism emergencies, financial emergencies, pandemic emergencies, I mean, there's a million different things. The common feature is there's a really big threat to something that we care about mm-hmm. and we have to do a really lot of stuff straight away Yep. to ensure that the outcome is not a million times worse than it could be. Yep. So that's the common thing. That's what's what we've got in common with trying to deal with climate change as an emergency. It's a really huge threat. We've got to move on a huge scale incredibly fast. And so the question then is how do human beings organise themselves once they realise that they are facing a threat like that and they want to prevent the problem and they have to move at a huge scale. And when you start looking at that, it's actually quite quite inspirational to discover how extraordinarily capable we are as a, as a you know bunch of people to to tackle stuff once we can get our sort of our so society into that emergency mode yep yeah that's it. so so safe climate emergency response is coupling a 
the need, what we actually need to do to yep. get to to save the things that will produce we a safe about. climate, yeah. to the things that we care about, and in a way that will actually achieve that. So exactly quickly enough. And as you were saying, the Great Barrier Reef right now is is a serious threat, and scientists are currently saying that it's dead, and not not in the distant future, within our lifetimes. They're saying ninety percent of the coral reefs will be gone by twenty fifty. Yep. This is incredible. This is probably the lifetimes of most people listening. That's and right. and what we need to do is make get, that make that not happen. Yeah, make <laughs> make that not happen. And we need and to do that we need to we need to treat it as an emergency and work very, very quickly and very, mm. very hard to mm. stop that from happening. Yeah. But we'll just go to a um a quick song and then we'll come back after we listen to Gautier, uh Eyes Wide Open from the Making Mirrors um album. And it's actually a song that's about climate change. So enjoy. So that was Eyes Wide Open by Gautier, and um, you're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR 855 AM on your radio. And I just wanted to promote a, um, a listener survey that 3CR is currently conducting, and it's open from April. It's been open from April the third and until uh, April the twenty eighth. And we want to hear from you. Three um, CR is all about servicing the community, and we want to know what your thoughts are, comments, and ideas are to help shape our future. We're currently asking listeners to take part in a short online survey that will help us get to know you better. Um, the results of this survey will assist us in continuing to be the best possible station we can be in service of our valued community. That's you guys. Uh, To have your voice heard, um, head to 3cr.org.au forward slash survey and fill out the survey. Or for those without internet, call the station during business hours. I think that's um, 9 till 5, well, weekdays, on 9419 and we can conduct the survey over the phone. Okay, so... As we've been discussing, um, climate change can have serious negative impacts on non-human animals um, through habitat loss, as we've talked about with uh, the coral reef, um, and everyone would have heard of habitat loss in the Arctic impacting polar bears. Um, It causes changes to species range shifts, and as Philip was mentioning earlier, temperature changes will mean that um, certain species that have adapted for a particular temperature range have to move out of that space or they go locally extinct and or they have to adapt and adaptation doesn't always occur that quickly. Uh, It influences life history traits like reproduction and can lead to morphological variation and 
it can lead to local extinction, among other things. And there have been several important papers, um, scientific research papers published in the last year or so that highlight some of these significant impacts on non-human animals. Um, in particular, I'm thinking of a paper that was published in Nature Climate Change earlier this year in February, I think, um, and it suggested that about 47% of threatened mammal species, so these are mammal species that we've identified to be already at threat of going extinct, 47% of those species are already experiencing negative impacts from climate change. And for bird species, it's 23% of um, threatened bird species that are already experiencing right now negative impacts of climate change. There was another paper published last year in, in PLOS Biology suggesting that about 47% of 976 species looked at um, had already experienced some sort of local extinction due to climate change. Now, this is, this is just um, incredible, and it really highlights that climate change is not a distant problem that for many in um, particularly Western societies where we're comfortable, we sort of um, put it off and go, oh, no, we can ignore it. We can sort of get away from it. But these individuals, these animals are already experiencing the harsh reality of climate change. And as animal people, uh, I believe our listeners are mostly animal people. Um, <laughs> I think probably they all yeah, are, actually. <laughs> yeah, um, that, that we should be concerned about these individuals and how they are being impacted right now by climate change. Uh, can you so? Can you give a quick overview of the expected environmental impacts that are currently happening, um, and the physical si systems that are being affected by climate change? I know you've mentioned it a little bit, but can you go into the physical systems a little bit more? So yeah, I mean, what what happens? Um, oh, well, let me see. Where do we start? In the in the cold areas, so that's the Arctic and the Antarctic the rate of warming is something like three times the rate of the global average. Um, and the reason for that is because areas that are dominated by ice, uh, as they lose ice, they then disproportionately warm up because the ice actually reflects quite a lot of sunlight to space. And so as you lose that, then much more of the heat's retained. So, yep. so that's um, the reason for the, for the big distinction there. Um, the The... Changing of the temperature in the in the Arctic and the Antarctic um, affects the jet stream. We, so normally there's a very fast. And what is the jet stream? Yeah, the jet stream. <laughs> there's there's normally a very fast uh, high level um, kind of flow of air that spins around the Earth, um, sort of like not not right at their poles, but mm -hmm. a bit down. I don't know how many kilometres, but it's you know probably I don't know hundreds or a thousand kilometres or something. But anyway, um, and it spins around really fast. But what it does, it actually kind of divides the um, the temperature environment from the, the, the Arctic and the Antarctic kind of stay very cold because warm air isn't able to get in. Okay. Uh, I mean, yep. norm normally with like with a physical system where you've got one place that's cold, one place that's hot, the equator's hot, the poles are cold, you know, that sets up a heat engine. So it means that you get convection currents, just like if you put a pot of, you know, water on a stove and you put heat on, on one side and you've got, you know, an open pan on the other, other then the water will kind of churn around as as the energy kind of moves from the from the hot place to the cold place and it, mo it moves the water. Yep. So you get the same kind of convection current. So... As as the temperature of the Arctic and the Antarctic gets warmer, the jet stream 
gets much, much weaker, which means then that you can actually get a penetration of the heat from the hot parts of the Earth into the cold areas. So they, in fact, start to heat up even more. So it's more than just the ice thing. It's, it's actually now the entry of heat that would normally not be able to get into that area. And, and, and because if you can get hot air into the Arctic, the air's got to go somewhere. It, so cold air from the Arctic comes out and it pours over, you know, China or the US or anywhere. And so what, what, you know that paradox you hear, which people are saying, oh, we've got these terrible cold winters that have come in. You think, how can that be happening in a globally warming world? How can you get co- super cold winters? And the answer is because the Arctic's getting super hot and it's sending really cold air that would normally not get into other places. And so people suddenly say, oh, my God, it's, it's really cold. Well, of course, that's all part of a globally warming world. Yep. It's just that it's, it's, it's starting to mix. It's yeah. starting to mix around like crazy. Um, other, other changes are that the, um, the climate zones um, tend to move. So that the, um, as the world gets warmer, then the, the zones that are suitable for particular species – um, if you track them on the Earth, you sort of see them kind of migrating. Yeah. Um, so it's like tropical zones or subtropical zones that's right. or temperate zones. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So let's 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 take a subtropical zone. So it's just on the edge of the the um, equator. That will then move in the northern hemisphere. It'll move northwards towards the North Pole, and the southern hemisphere it'll move southwards towards the South Pole. Um, and that's why we you know we find ourselves. Well, has anybody wondered why there are fruit bats in Melbourne? Mm, That's a good question. (laughs) Now, the answer is that they started coming in 30 years ago, and it's because of global warming. Okay, there you go. And, I mean, there's there's another really clear example of um, these rain shifts is through mosquitoes. Um, We're getting mosquitoes carrying certain uh, diseases coming further down at the Australian coast um, because their, their temperature range is increasing. That's right. And they can move into lower um, latitudes. Yeah. Now the species that can Higher move latitudes. if if a species can move readily like the fruit bats were able to move and they were able to set up in, you know, originally the botanic gardens and then they spread out across the whole of Melbourne pretty much. Um so ones that can move and find a suitable habitat, then they might they might do okay. They might they might be okay while the temperature rises as long as it doesn't get too extreme, like there's there's a limit to everything. Um but a lot of species, like if you're a 500-year-old, um, you know, tree or something or a forest or whatever, you're not going to be sort of upping anchors and walk, <laughs> walking, you know, like hundreds of kilometres per decade to get to more suitable territory. No. And human beings have taken the natural areas and chopped them up to pieces. So we've got what used to be continuous natural environments, will, you know, what we would, I guess, call wilderness areas. Um, I mean, they've... They were wilderness areas with people in them, but they yeah. they were contiguous natural areas, um, and those are now chopped up, and they're mainly chopped up by agricultural um, development and yep. roads and you know whatever, and so it, it, we've got all these little islands um, where there's ecosystems that are going to have to hang on, and so basically each island has has the things that live there, the species plants, animals, whatever, they're going to have to um, adapt so rapidly that they can cope with these increasing temperatures. Changes in rainfall distribution, places that used to be um, not flooding so much are now flooding, other places that used to be reasonably wet are now really dry. And so all these changes are just battering yep. you know, natural species everywhere. Yep. And, and that is, I think that's the um, 
what that paper that was talking about the local extinctions was really um, pointing out that on the range on the range edge of of species ranges so they, these are the areas that they can survive where there's a temperature increase or, or um, change that is outside of their um, habitable sort of environment physiological capabilities etc yeah they they are um dying out from those places and they they'll no longer they won't be able to recolonize those usually because the temperature will be outside of their their um temperature ranges yeah Yeah. and there's all sorts of ecological connections so that you know some species depend well every every species depends on other species so you know if 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 the impact is occurring well i mean the classic one with the barrier reef is that um the corals can't maintain the the algae inside their cells. Mm. The um, what do they call it? Embos, endosymbionts. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> yeah. So so the 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 algae um, are expelled. I, quite frankly, I'm not sure what happens to them once they're put out into the sea. I don't suppose they thrive quite as well as they would have inside the corals. Um, and then if the corals are able to recover then they'll take the algae back into their cells and then they've got their kind of local mm. ecosystem still working again. But if they, if, if, it's, if it's too hot for too long, those algae can't come in and then the corals die because they just lose the energy source. Yep. So, do you, so given all these impacts and all of these issues that we're facing right now, do you think that people have really connected with the reality of the climate threat? Like the emergency that we are in right now um, – in relation to climate change, and and if not, how can that message be advocated? Um, I think I think we, we we have we have and we haven't. It's kind of a really bizarre like it's about bizarre response. Some people don't connect because they've got air conditioning. Mm. <laughs> I yeah. mean, that in a literal sense, that they they are able to buffer their own situation. They buy food that's sourced from around the world. Um, and flown in from, or you know, trucked in from wherever. So the farmers keep on having to move, you know, where they can grow things. But our lives appear to be unchanging. So, so there's a whole lot of people who don't really experience the the impacts that are actually occurring in the land, in the seas, right now. Yeah. Because we can adapt fairly readily. There are other people who are are really aware of the issue, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners are really aware. Mm-hmm. Um, but then. There's this feeling that this problem is so big and it seems to have defeated that, you know, the sort of like there's international um, conferences being held with, you know, leading politicians from every country and negotiators and all the rest of it. So they clearly like the world knows the issues real and it's there. And yet the response is pathetic, to be honest. And so we then sort of think as individuals, well, look, okay, the world officialdom knows about this, but... Um, what can I do? Like I'm, a, I'm one person in seven billion people, and if the if the official world knows about it but can't get their act together, what on earth can I do about that? So I well, think that's a that's a perfect segue into what what can we do? What do you think? What are things that we can do to achieve a safe climate at an emergency pace? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's okay. There's two parts of that. One is one is physically what's going to protect. You know the the reef, the uh, the the mangroves in the north, and the kelp forests, and the birds across Australia, and etc. Et yeah. I mean, um, and, and I could repeat the same kind of pattern for every other country, in the, you know, nation yeah. and region in the world. Um, okay, so what can we do? We ha- we have to stop making the problem worse, so it's zero emissions, and we need to do it immediately. So um, we can't, of course, do it 
instantly, but we should set out to do it instantly, if that makes sense. Like, in other words, there's no, there's no safe further time. Yep. We have to do it just as fast as it can be done. It needed to happen tomorrow, uh, yesterday, so let's, let's do it as quickly as we can. Yeah, and, and when I say quickly, I mean, like, as, as if our lives depend on it, because... Yep. You know, many of our lives, many of your, many of our human lives depend on this in the end. But also, vast like the the things that will get. Sorry, um, the the things that will get the most hit will be other species because humans. Sorry, other species and poor people. Yeah. They will be the people who will be, you know, they will be the, the thing, the entities that, (laughs) that, that will be hit most because they can't adapt. Yeah. Um, so what we have to do is move at an extraordinary speed. Okay, so how do we okay, – I'll go through. We, we need to take the CO2 out of the air, so it's creating an industry the size of the coal, gas and oil industry, only bigger because it's got to do its job faster. And we've got to unmine and unuse coal, gas and oil. So we've got to get it out of the air. So it's yeah. a huge industry. And What's an example of that? That's like uh, growing growing more forests or um, – or- what are examples of okay growing more forest and restoring natural ecosystems is critical but what we're doing there is we're replacing the forests and natural ecosystems that had been destroyed so Mm. that what we're doing is is not we're not dealing with industrial emissions what we're dealing with is past impacts of agricultural extension yep so we have to do that but it's but more but more um we need to probably grow um certain amount of of plant crops which can be um, ch- uh, chopped down on a really short rotation and, ch- and the material charred and then ploughed into the soil. Um, but the thing is that the, the amount of area that you'd need to to solve the problem that way, to get the CO2 carbon dioxide out of the air that way, is equal to or greater than the amount of land we currently use to grow food. Mm. Um, yep. So we can't really push that too far. So, but there are other techniques of... Um, that are basically sort of chemistry-based, uh, physics-based techniques which um, enable you to trap the CO2 chemically and, you know, put it away. So, But that's a huge job and it's going to cost money. It, it's a bit like the defence costs or education costs or health costs or whatever. It's, it's a new cost we're going to have to add to our society yep. that we have to pay. Um, and then the third one is that um, because so many people and so many species are, are threatened, so many species numerically and so many people, it's kind of like in that order, uh, are threatened right now, I think that we have a moral obligation to look at whether we can safely, sorry, with net benefit to nature, whether we can actually do short-term cooling. Uh, a bit like, so for example, marine organisms, uh, sorry, marine algae, produce a gas called dimethyl sulfide. They've been doing it for millions and millions and millions of years, like probably hundreds and hundreds of millions of years. The funny thing about this dimethyl sulfide is that when it goes up into the air after the algae expel it from or they die or whatever, however it gets out of the, their cells, goes up into the air above the oceans and it's chemically broken down, turns into sulfuric acid. Little tiny droplets of water and sulfuric acid are floating around in, in the natural, you know, have always been... Yep. floating around in the natural um, environment, and they help form clouds. And the clouds uh, help cool the surface of the ocean. They stop radiate. They stop sunlight getting into, yeah, into yeah. the Yeah, basically the sunlight's yeah. coming down, it hits the top of the clouds, and instead of continuing on in warming up the surface of the ocean, the it's reflected back out to space, and so things are a little a little bit cooler, not not massively, but a little bit cooler than they would have been. Now, that's a natural cooling process done by living organisms um maybe we can emulate that 
and maybe it can be done with ecological safety, I think we have to find out whether we can. If we can't, we shouldn't do it. And if it does work, then maybe we need to think about it. But that's a critically important, I think a morally critically important issue that we have to look at. And I don't know the outcome. I don't know the results of what we'll discover. It may be that we can't do it. So so to sum up, if if we're going to achieve a safe climate, we need to go zero emissions and that's that's carbon emissions but also methane which is yeah, absolutely. Um, largely um, produced by the animal industry animal agricultural industry yep. and it's a much bigger impact per molecule than it would be from carbon dioxide yeah absolutely and could have um, short-term benefits Fast, because it's only faster in, benefits because yeah. it's only in the atmosphere for 20 years so well, getting, less less actually oh less more okay. like about 10 average Okay. Yep. So it could 12, have a really whatever. big benefit. Small. Um, and and then we need to draw down those excess um, greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere yep. that are currently warming and continuing to warm the atmosphere. Yep. And we need to figure out if we can do it in a safe way, quickly enough. And if we can't, without some sort of say, um, cooling, chemical cooling mechanisms, we should investigate whether those yep. chemical cooling mechanisms can work. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, now that that's that's technically how you solve it. But yeah. the thing, that, that's not really what's stopping things. Yeah. Well, sorry, it is in a sense because it costs money to do some of that and it will, um, I mean, these days, in fact, in the energy sector, it actually doesn't cost extra money. It's just a, a choice of pathway. Then you've got vested interests that don't want to change because they're quite happy with what they're currently doing, like the current coal-fired, gas-fired power stations and the oil-based transport industry and the agriculture sector that wants to you know keep on producing methane Etc. Um, but then, um, okay. Sorry. Um, yeah. So you've got you've got so those are physical things that we need to do. But yeah. there's a whole lot of social things that we need to get, right. get going. We we're not going to actually achieve those physical things unless we have the motivation That's to right. do it. And, That's right. And this is the sticking point. Yeah. This is where we need to work. And this is this is the thing that the crucial thing about an emergency response is that it is a social response. It's where a, a supermajority of people. I mean, you never ever get a hundred percent agreement around anything, so you, you shouldn't expect, you know, that we'll have every literal person agreeing with what we're talking about. But it, what we really need is a supermajority, like. 60, 70, 80, 90 percent of people saying, "Okay, let's do this thing. Let's do it really fast. Let's get on with it." And it's 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 like this this catch twenty two, which is that when people look around, they see a huge problem. Like we just listed the things that need to be done. That, re- that means re- reshaping pretty much the entire economy. Yeah, like it's a big job, and we we're saying we need to do this really quickly. So it's outside the normal behaviour of you know normal societies, and then. People saying, okay, it can only be done if we have the whole society committed and I don't think enough people are concerned or care. And so then they think, oh, well, okay, I won't get involved because it's just it's just too heartbreaking and besides which I think it's a waste of time because, you know, what's it going to do anyway? Yep. So somehow or other we have to unstick that. So we and, and, and we're having a bit of a go at this at the moment or we've got a strategy which may or may not work, but, you know, it's a, it, it's, it, it could work. Okay, so what is it? There will be in any society um, – I mean, okay, let, let's say we agree that, that half the people think it's a problem, climate's a problem, and the other half probably don't think it is. Even amongst the people who do think it's a problem, most people are feeling pretty disempowered about the issue. So somewhere in Australia or any country, you'll usually find a, a few places where um, people disproportionately think 
that it's a real issue. It's a real problem. Yep. And you may be able to also find a place, various places around Australia where the political local government politics is that you can get a majority of people who care about the issue, like, you know, councillors who are prepared yep. to do it. Yep. Now, it's a very funny thing because we need a national response and local government's not normally where you'd look to for a national program. But it's it's where we can look to for the early movers who can kind of legitimise this emergency response. And so what we've actually started to do is we've, we've identified um, a council it happens to be in Melbourne. Um, it happens to have um, uh, basically the highest level of climate awareness of anywhere in Australia, yep. for better or for worse. Um, and it so this is Darabin City Council. Now, as it turns out, there's a majority of councillors there who actually care about climate, like quite passionately, uh, quite genuinely, like it's their personal concern. Yep. They are in an electorate which is pretty concerned overall, like it's as concerned as any electorate in Australia. Yep. And they have agreed that they will promote an emergency response. And so this is a chance to actually demonstrate that a real part of kind of mainstream society can actually take this thing seriously. So we can kind of provide proof of concept. And I think that this will actually unlock... So like councils often copy each other so that, you know... Concerned councils are in different parts of Australia, Fremantle City Council, um, North Coast of New South Wales. I mean, there's a million others, well, not a million, but there's, a, there's quite a significant number of other councils that probably would adopt this approach fairly quickly. Once they show that it can be done, then other councils that are not kind of climate leaders will say, oh, okay, I get it. I can see what they're doing. Maybe we can do it too. Mm. And the activist movement as well can start to go out and say, we can make this happen. And so you could actually start building commitment first at the local government level and spreading out across local government, then pushing, then the crucial role of the local governments themselves is not just to be, not just to be trying to do the zero emissions and the drawdown, et cetera, locally, because they don't have the money currently and they don't have the whatever. Um, but to push it up to the state government, say, mm, okay, yep. you guys control infrastructure spending, you make, you do high-level regulatory stuff which says whether fossil fuels can be used or not used or agriculture is going to be managed this way or that way. And so, so the state government has enormous powers which are really critical to making this change. And then finally we want to push it up from state and territory governments up to the national government because they control most of the money flow to the public sector yep. through taxation. So that's the plan. Yeah, great. And I mean, that it's sort of like bottom up rather than we've seen top down fail for the last 25 years. When was Kyoto? 90, yeah. 91? Yeah. It's, and it's just been failing ever since. So That's right. I think it's an exciting time to see what might happen with yeah. this, sort of, um, yeah. this sort of campaigning. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I, I've been working on climate for what, 10 years, sort of basically full time. And this particular development is the thing that's given me absolutely the most hope and the most excitement around you know in those last 10 years great and so sort of in that same that same sort of um, vein of the how we get society thinking more about climate and um and discuss or being involved in climate issues i've I've sort of i've been involved in advocacy and activism in both the environmental and animal movements for several years now and well, I think they're very closely aligned. I find that most people um, within those that predominantly work within either movement um, tend to stick to their area. So they'll either be an environmentalist or they'll be an animal advocate. And they will even like denigrate the other movement. So I, I will, I'll hear 
um, environmental uh, environmentalists say like laugh at the idea of animal rights, but at the in the same sentence as using animal iconography to promote environmentalism, say polar bears, or and I'll I'll um, speak or see uh, vegans in the animal rights movement. Uh, co-opt environmental campaigns to press the message of their own animal rights sort of agenda and not really get invested in the animal right uh, in the environmental um environmental movement and this is sort of the idea that you know veganism will solve all our environmental problems which i can say quite clearly that it will not it will be a very good thing to do mm. and it will help and it'll go a long way but we need to do much more than that how how do we how do we try and get say animal people who might be listening to really um to really take on the the campaigning in the climate movement to try and not only not only be not only be really part of that that movement to to get the numbers because we need the numbers um but also to in that way get a give a voice to animals within that movement yeah, as well yeah. like by separating ourselves yeah. and often just pointing at environmentalists and saying, you're not really environmentalists. I think we do ourselves a disservice and we do animals a disservice. Is there, do you, have you felt that before or do you see that? Oh, yeah, that? yeah, yeah. That, that, kind, that kind of interaction is, I mean, I, have, you know, I can see it directly with the issues you've, you've mentioned of, you know, climate activism or, or you know, environmentalism generally and, and animal rights, etc. Um, but it's, it's also, it's also a problem, you know, like right across society, everybody, everybody's got, you know, a range of issues that they attach, you know, that they are passionately committed to because mm. it, it really means something important to them. Um, and when there's differences, we we support what we support and we tend to be less supportive of other stuff. So that's fair enough. Part of it is, is tricky, though, because, I mean, not everybody has to agree with everybody else. I mean, I, yep. I don't think you'll end up with a society where we all literally agree on everything. Yep. But I think that what's probably going to be important is is to, uh, like, if you if you take the logic of, of animal rights um, to its fullest extent, then, so, for example, um, if, if you, let, let's say we just, stroke of a pen, we just banned animal agriculture, gone. Um, let's say we got rid of pets. I mean, I'm not sure that all animal people would want to get rid of pets, but let's say that that's, yep. that happened. Then the only non-human animals, well, not the only, but basically the most non-human animals will be living in natural areas or quasi-natural areas. Um, and so if we don't look after those areas, yep. they won't survive. Yep. So even if you just looked, followed completely down the path of, you know, I'm an animal activist and I care about the fact that other animals should be able to exist and carry out their lives and, you know, do what they want to do, they've got to survive. They don't have air conditioning. Mm. Yeah, they need environments to live within. So we, so, and this is something that I strongly, strongly feel and why I work within these two, these two movements is that we need to be protecting those environments that are important not just only in their own right, which they are, hmm. but for animals that live within those pla- those places. It's a, it's well, a the animals have got to live somewhere. Yeah, exactly. If we if we're yeah. getting getting them out of, you know, you might call it serfdom or slavery or you know whatever yeah. in 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 human situations, then they're going to the place where they'll be living is in nature. Yep. Or in the wild. I mean, even if they're flying between, you know, skyscrapers or whatever. But the thing is that okay, in Melbourne, skyscrapers. You know, you'll have have some of the falcons, falcons and things living yeah. uh, on the top of buildings. But nobody is air conditioning for them, mm. right? The air conditioning is inside the building for the humans. 
And those falcons will live or die according to how hot and terrible it is outside the buildings. So the thing is that the only way we're going to protect them is not through some kind of how to put it like providing rights for them or or, or um, recognizing their rights it's by solving the physical the, problem of climate change which so they can live yeah so we need to provide a safe climate for those individuals for those that animals. we care about that's right exactly yeah. and so it's it's not it's not a case of saying let's bring envir- climate stuff kind of as a separate issue into animal rights it's mm. it's saying if we care for animals what do animals need see that's the whole thing again yeah. start with what you care about yeah. what do they need Yep. Okay, let's do that. Yep. Yeah, I I totally agree. <laughs> I think it would be it would be it's a it's an important issue that not enough of the people I sort of speak with they they're concerned about climate change, but they don't sort of um, approach it in that manner. They don't cha- approach it in the manner that we need to deal with climate change. Yeah. yeah, I can understand why people sometimes might feel that. So, for example, you might say, okay, look, there's, there's a scat of climate, activ- climate activists. They're all out there doing that. Mm. How many people are doing animal rights properly? And you sort of look around and think, you know, way too few. And so you think, okay, I'll specialise yep. in that. Okay, that makes complete sense. But you've got to then also say, okay, as an animal rights activist, as a – well, no, not – not even as an animal rights activist, just as a person who cares about animals. Yeah. Like that's really what the heart of it is. And I mean, the rights are only there to protect the animals. Like the rights aren't the thing. Yeah. It's the animals that are the thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if we care about the animals and let them be able to live and have a, have a, be able to do their thing in their life, then they need an environment that they can survive in. And yeah. so therefore, climate stuff is part of the animal movement. Movement. Yeah. Uh, and, and needs to be. Needs yeah. to be. Forget about climate activists they can all go off to mars or somewhere but yep. just from one's own personal concern climate has to be part of what we do i think that is a fantastic note um to end on and i i totally agree with that sentiment that as animal people if we are concerned with animals then climate has to be something that we tackle and yep. we work towards yep. creating a safe climate for non-human individuals that are being impacted by climate yep Fantastic. Thank you very much for um, joining us today, Philip. It's been a pleasure. It's been good to talk about these issues. Um, and hopefully uh, people out there listening, you'll, um, you'll look at climate with a new, a new view and be able to incorporate climate into your activism, um, into your activism for animals uh, because... They're one in the same, as we've just been discussing. You've been listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR, 855 AM on your radio. Um, up next, we've got Encyclodelia uh, to help re- rethink the psychoactive paradigm. It's always a good one to listen to. And on the way out, we're going to listen to I'm Gonna Make You Mind. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.